Hello, and welcome to the latest in a series of podcasts brought to you by the Hewitt Fertility Centre. This episode is based around the topic of embryology. What goes on behind the scenes of a fertility clinic? What happens to your eggs after they are extracted? And how are new procedures and technologies giving you the best chance of achieving a successful pregnancy? Today, I'm joined by Rachel Gregoire, Scientific Director here at the Hewitt Fertility Centre, as well as Rebecca Lunt and Hannah Newby, Senior Clinical Embryologist. Can you guys talk me through what it is exactly that an embryologist does at the Hewitt Fertility Centre? Um, an embryologist is responsible for looking after the gametes, the eggs, the sperm, um, and also the embryos for a patient during their treatment cycle. So um, the first point of contact really is at their egg collection, um, where we will go in and speak to the couple, um, and we perform part of the egg collection procedure where the doctor will drain the follicles, um, the follicular fluid, and we take that those tubes of fluid and look through them and search for the eggs. Um, and then um, those eggs are put in the incubator for a few hours, but four hours later, then the sperm is inseminated with the eggs mm-hmm. uh, via IVF or ICSI. Um, we have specialist practitioners that perform the ICSI procedure. Um, that's an additional training that an embryologist has to go through to do that. Um, and then after fertilisation the following day, we monitor the embryos in the lab for up to five, uh, up to six days to see um, the quality, what they're doing, how they look, which ones are good and which ones are poor. Um, and then we, we can grade them and we can assess them in terms of the divisions. Um, at each point we've got contact with the patient, um, letting them know how things are going. And then um, at embryo transfer is the next point of, pa- of patient contact really where we load the embryos into a catheter um, and the doctor or fertility nurse practitioner will replace them back into the lady. Okay. Question on that, what is a gamete? A gamete is a sperm or an embryo. Okay. So it's it's a, sorry, a sperm or an egg. Okay. You do work here, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You should also say about freezing. Oh, yes. Freezing as well. Yeah, yeah. The, um, so we, f- we freeze embryos that are of suitable quality that aren't required in the fresh cycle. So sometimes patients um, may not be ready for a, a fresh transfer on, on that cycle. So we freeze anything that has reached the appropriate stage within the appropriate time scales and is of good quality. Um, and also anybody who does have a fresh transfer, they might have surplus embryos um, and we we freeze them again and also freezing gametes so freezing eggs and sperm for patients for whatever reason whether that's fertility preservation or otherwise donors so what what, under what circumstances would you know people need these services so the freezing the freezing Mm. um one example being for fertility preservation if they were um having to go through chemotherapy for example which could render them infertile they may wish to freeze their eggs or sperm Right, so after egg collection, what happens? So, as Becky said earlier, once we get the follicular fluid from the doctors, once the follicles are emptied, we then um, identify the eggs in the fluid and we wash them. Um, We just remove some of the follicular fluid and pop it into a dish that contains a media to look after them, I suppose, and it's just a solution that maintains, has everything that the egg needs to keep it alive, to help it metabolise. 
The dish containing the eggs then goes into an incubator and that again is kept at 37 degrees, so body temperature. The gases are maintained to make sure that the pH, so the acidity of the solution it's in is kept um, correct. So this is just replicating the environment as best the as possible. Yeah. As best as possible. And the gas the gas concentrations to mimic it sort mm. of within the body. And the eggs are then kept in the incubator for about four hours. At that same time, the sperm is being washed and processed, ready for the insemination. If it was a standard IVF, um, IVF just means um, fertilization in a dish. So once the sperm is washed, we add about 100,000 motel sperm, normal motel sperm, to a group of eggs. And it just takes seconds, really. We just add the sperm to the eggs and we pop the eggs back into the incubator and they're left overnight to fertilize themselves. If it's an ICSI, ICSI is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. That just simply means the injection of a single sperm into each egg. So that's a bit more complex. It's exactly the same in some ways for the patient, but it's more complex in the lab. And as Becky mentioned earlier, it's um, sort of highly skilled scientists that perform that procedure. So what they do, they do something called stripping the eggs, where they take the cells from around the egg that have come out of the follicle with the egg. We have to take those cells away, so we strip them. Um, and that allows us to look more closely at the egg to see if it's mature. And it has to be mature to be able to be injected with a sperm. Um, that, mature, that stripping away of the cells also allows us to manipulate the egg better, to hold on to the egg better in the correct position to allow us to inject it with the sperm. So once the eggs are stripped and we know how many mature eggs we ha have, the eggs go back into the incubator while we get ready. Um, we then basically, it's, it's, it's quite a simple procedure really, uh, once the trainings, once we've gone through the training, is we simply just add some really fine tools to uh, a big micro manipulator and that's attached to a microscope. And those needles and tools allow us to catch sperm, allow us to hold onto the egg, and allow us to inject a single sperm into the egg. Okay. This is the equipment we always see whenever we look for IVF or ICSI, the two kind the of two, needles that's, coming in and the microscope. That's the microscope every video that you see, yeah, is a yeah. sperm being injected into an egg. Yeah. Once that process has happened for each individual egg that's mature, the same thing, the eggs then go back into the incubator, but um, in a, in the Hewitt Centre, they go back into an embryoscope, which is a time-lapse incubator. Okay. And we watch the embryos grow, the eggs or embryos grow from them. Well, that leads me on pretty nicely to the next question I was going to ask. Um, speaking about the embryoscope and equipment that we use in the lab, how's the technology surrounding IVF and embryology particularly advanced over the past 30 years? In some ways, massively. Yeah, there's lots of different things, isn't there? And in, in other ways, years. not at all, though, I think. Yeah, the main techniques are still very standard and haven't changed, you could argue, for decades. But there has been lots of new technology come in, specifically, like Rachel's just mentioned, the embryoscope. Or embryoscope is a um, specific model of time-lapse incubator. So we used to have to get the eggs or embryos out the incubator momentarily to look at them on a microscope. Um, but obviously by doing that you're exposing them to an unfavourable environment when really they should be in the incubator for as long as possible. Um, the, the introduction of time-lapse technology means that we can leave the eggs and embryos in a relatively undisturbed environment for as long as possible and look at them uh, a lot more in a lot more detail because these machines actually take a picture of an embryo every few minutes and then put them together into a time-lapse 
um, video. Can you remember when we saw the first time yeah. that's video at that yeah. conference? Was it in Dublin? Yeah. Dublin, How yeah. long ago was yeah. that? Yeah. That, was that was 11 years ago, I think. That was amazing because for an embryologist that's taken a, an embryo out of, out of the incubator and looked and gone, right, yeah, it's got four cells, it's nice. Snapshot image. Yeah, yeah two seconds. Yeah. It's nice or it's not nice. Um, this I can't remember the gentleman's name who did it, but he played this video and he paused it at, at, at the two at the four cell stage and asked an audience of hundreds of embryologists, "What would you grade this embryo as?" And it really wasn't a very nice embryo. Yeah. Um, and we're all going, "Oh no, you know that would be a two one or a two two or whatever the grading was was at that time." Um, and then he continued to play the video, and this embryo just sorted itself out. The the bits um, when embryos develop, they have little bits of the cells break off, which is normal in embry embryology developments. But um, they're called fragments, and the more uh, an embryo has of those, the lower the score that you give the embryo. And this embryo had a lot of those, and then like just a few minutes later, it had just reabsorbed them. So it was really quite a, a wow moment for us all. Shocking, you shocking. Remember it, and I think what you remember, what I absolutely distinctly remember at the end of the lecture, we all stood up and clapped. Yeah, yeah it was standing yeah. ovation. That feeling of I wish we had that in our lab. Yeah. So that what you're saying is, before before this equipment came along, really, that was an embryo that probably would have been discarded yeah, and therefore a, a yeah. woman that may not have become pregnant yeah, without yeah, Potent, yeah, potentially. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it wasn't that it wasn't transferable, just, but it's just that we would have, for that moment in time, we would have graded that as poor. Hmm. And actually, in terms of freezing, it may not have been suitable for freezing. And I think also, Becky, the culture conditions at that time weren't good enough to allow embryos to grow up to day five. Yeah. Hmm. So at that point, we would have made critical decisions yeah. based on what we saw in a one second snapshot. Yeah. Whereas now time lapse has come along at a time where the cuts so of the, the solutions, the media that the embryos are kept in are better, way better than they used to be. And that's probably one of the big substantial changes. So they've as kind well. of run in tandem and they've come together. They have. A bit it's of almost a, perfect a timing. Time lapse really came at a time when we were having to look at our multiple pregnancy rates. Yeah. So we had to go from more single embryos to be transferred. So we had to pick the best one embryo. Mm. So and also needed more information yeah. because of those sort yeah. of pressures from the from the HFV. So you're dealing with a lot narrower tolerances. This has allowed you to be a little, and not relaxed is probably the bad word, but it's allowed you to kind of it's widen us, your vision in it's, that it's sense it's of what you can It's a process of elimination. Like. So we're able, yeah. we're able to identify, as well as seeing which embryos develop well, one of the main things that I've got out of it is you feel justified in those embryos that are developing poorly or abnormally. Whereas before, if it was just yeah. a snapshot, it would still just be a four cell or a five cell, or you know, mm. it wouldn't be very. Whereas now we can go, wow, why is that? That's gone from one cell to five cells straight away. That's not usual. So it's it's being able to get to the end point of treatment so much quicker. So a patient nice. years ago might have just had um, transfer after transfer on day two because at the four cell stage that's all that we knew. Whereas now you you, you know you culture big batches of embryos for some patients, um, and you can get eliminate the ones that haven't got the potential very quickly, so they reach their pregnancy hopefully a lot quicker than they would have done. Which is the end game, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. There was just on the mention of time lapse. It was quite funny, wasn't it, when it came in because it was all you know being banded about that it was a bit of a joke what, that the um, time lapse incubators are going to replace embryologists, where in fact it's actually given us more to do x many times more work to do because we have to analyze all those images rather than just having the, the one yeah. snapshot. Yeah. There's, there's certainly time lapse has been a big one. I think. Um, Technologies regarding, for example, sperm prep, nothing's changed, like yeah. preparation of the sperm for treatment, nothing's changed at all. 
Um, well, this was going to be my next question: was what's almost a little bit un- unchanged in that sense? What would maybe surprise people to hear that it's exactly the same now as it was in the seventies or the early eighties? It's, it's developing very slowly. There are there are new techniques that we're trying to gain more information on. That you know, higher powered microscopes, so we can look at the sperm a bit more closely. Um, and we've taken part in a research project recently called Hab Select, which um, helps that basically this it gives it a plaque of um, hyaluronin, but it's it's what's on the what's on the outside of the egg naturally um, is like a plaque on the dish, and the sperm attract themselves to it. So you basically rather than looking at the best looking, best swimming sperm and the ICSI practitioner choosing it, we're choosing the sperm that stick into this plaque because they're the ones that would do it naturally. Um, and the results for that should be released in January in our annual conference. So in terms of sperm development, that might be one yeah, of the first yeah. things that comes in that revolutionises, say revolutionise, ICSI was the thing that revol- yeah. revolutionised yeah, yeah. sperm. But yeah, the next... But even before that came along, and maybe even before ICSI came along, which is still relatively recent as far as I understand. 20, 25 years. Oh, 25 years, ICSI, is it now? Okay, so a little year. bit older than... November, actually, it was November. Awesome. And you know it was an accident. So they couldn't when when IVF You're not gonna get someone in trouble. Yeah, no, 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 it's genuinely an accident. They they, they brag about this. It's the best okay. accident you could ever yeah. have done. So originally um IVF was designed really for um, people with tubal damage and problems because you were bypassing the fallopian tube and putting the eggs and sperm together in a dish. And then um what happened was obviously lots of patients could then access treatment, but those people where the male partner had really poor uh, low sperm counts or low motility they couldn't it, it wasn't successful because the sperm naturally couldn't swim towards the egg or there wasn't enough sperm to swim towards the egg so the immediate treatment choice for them was was donor sperm um, which they had sperm there there just wasn't enough so there was a group in Belgium that were trying to help the sperm in some way so they were making a hole in the outer shell of the egg it was called mm-hmm. the zona making a small hole and allowing one or two sperm to swim just inside this kind of gap between the shell and the egg itself and hopefully help it penetrate yeah. the egg. And one day somebody's needle slipped and it went into the egg, actually into the egg and put the sperm inside of the egg. I as see, well. okay. It's just, it moved, they went too far with the egg, with the needle and um, it fertilized. But what they found, they had actually a lot of sperm, they had a lot of egg damage as well with that because they weren't, at that time, the sperm was almost being dropped into the egg and still motile within the egg. Mm. So they then decided to immobilize the, the sperm by, by striking its tail, which is what we still do mm. now. And success rates went even further. I think what was the most amazing thing about that was when they found out their success, their immediate response, that, that group were, how quickly can we share this information with the world? Yeah. How quickly can everybody follow our practice and help how many patients? And it's changed, science has changed a little mm. bit. and fertility treatment has changed somewhat in that it's become more competitive yeah, which is yeah. which is sad for the patients no because that's what it's like because you don't want to share anymore. because they're the ones yeah, well we yeah. have this technique and you don't therefore we're better hmm. and it's actually not about that it's about sharing the knowledge yeah, and making particularly sure with have. medicine i suppose as well isn't it because of the kind of the literally life-changing yeah ability yeah that so has, yeah. so yeah that, that's been one of the major things absolutely yeah i was going to say ICSI's probably over the if we're talking about the last 40 years ICSI's definitely one of the main isn't mm. it mm-hmm. revolutionary ones because it's a whole group of patients mm. That, like male infertility, who had male infertility, yeah. Before, yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay, so moving Amazing. on. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. So, 
Um, the topic of donors has been something that's been discussed in the in the news and out of the news and everything else over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Just broadly speaking, why is it that we need donors? Why is it that a centre like the Hewitt Facility Centre is, is asking people, is putting the call out for donors? Why is it so important? To help to help childless couples, to, you know, the, the gentlemen that come through and, and have their semen analysis and find that they have no sperm at all. I mean, that is a, that's a big blow for, 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 for blokes, isn't it? You know, that that's, and, and, they, and it's to give, it's the same with egg donors as well, or embryo donors, people who have created lots of embryos and have had their family and, and then choose to donate their I hate to call them surplus embryos because you know, but that that but that's, that's what the technical they, language. Well, that, that that's what use, they are yeah. for that for those couples, and yeah. people choose to give those those to other individuals and um and help a couple become a family um and or the family that they would wish to have. So um, I think the difficulty that we've had with sperm donors over the, the years is the an- anonymity that's um that's changed, um and that can be very off putting for um a lot of people because I think that a lot of um men were happy to donate knowing that they weren't going to get a knock on the door when the child turned 18 um, and what the ramifications of that would be mm-hmm. um, whereas now that that is a right of the child born to find out where the genetic origin is um, which I, I agree with I must say um, but I think it just involves a little bit more counselling and a little bit more understanding of what of what that means and what yeah. you know um, so there is a shortage. There is a shortage of donors um, in this country. I mean, you can buy sperm from abroad. Um, but the an- anonymity and the, I think, the, for example, with egg donors, the, the gift that that is. I mean, mm. it's a huge yeah. gift because it's the it's it's an invasive procedure that the, the egg donors have yeah. as well. And I just think there is this there is this shortage. And I think also, it's it's male partners who can't who have very no sperm. But also, it's our, our patients have changed. You know, over the years, we have obviously a lot more same-sex couples. I was just about to mention. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. a whole that's a whole cohort mm-hmm. of couples. Yeah, um, that need donor sperm. They, you know, that's their there's only no other option. option. Yeah. Um, single single women who want to have treatment, um, and that then comes into um, we now we now have a lot more sort of tra- um, the trans population. Mm-hmm. So we have sperm storage for. For males uh, transitioning to females, um, or egg, you could have egg storage for for the you know women oh, transitioning to men. That, yeah. But then you then have to think sort of the long term uh, problems or issues that they may encounter is when they meet their new partner, and how they'll then use their gametes, the, the eggs or their sperm that they have in storage. So there's there's a lot more need for donors for surrogates yeah. uh, for you know for our same sex male couples that need a surrogate as mm-hmm. well. I would hope this has just come into my head now because I think there's still a bit of a stigma attached to it, isn't it? And I think it... it the most, donation. Yeah. And I think that um, you're right in that you don't necessarily want somebody knocking on your door 18 years down the line or a lot of people might find that off-putting because they don't want to count these these resulting children as their mm. children. But, you know, give it like 10 years ago or 20 years ago, like when we were in school, you didn't have the same same-sex couples like you mentioned or single ladies who choose to have children by themselves all these sort of introduction of donor gametes and i think in classrooms today where children grow up there's all there's bound to be ivf conceived children who have yeah. parents of every yes, sort of gender yes, and every yes. mix of that mm. so i kind of hope in the future that idea of like donation will be a little bit more 
commonplace and that might encourage people to donate more i think yeah. some stories from some donor children as well mm. you know if that was if that was ever something that you know you know they're not planning on knocking anyone anybody's door and and wanting you know, they, they know wanting parents. anything yeah. from they know you know yeah they're, they're happy with their life and and it's just it's, i mean they might just a lot want to say thanks yes exactly that's yeah. just what i was going to say just the acknowledgement of thank I you think for it doing is, this i mean being, being the only man in the room, I can say that that would be my hesitance if I was doing it, that there'd be some kind of um, liability or responsibility to that child. Not, no. I don't think it's very common from speaking to people within the centre. That, that's, well, it, it just doesn't not. seem Legally, that happening. there's not. You're not the yeah. legal parent. No. You're not the legal parent. They're not the legal parent of any well, child. Well, an emotional so. responsibility yes. yeah, more, yeah. So, more yeah. so than a financial one. But I think from, from speaking to people within the clinic since I've been here, I don't think it is overly common I don't, I don't think it does I think quite to be often I mean I, I don't know I mean, you did need to speak to one of our counselors I suppose but it's just about identity and if somebody wants to know further into their heritage mm. then they might they might explore that mm. but many it's like you know with adopted children how many children look for their biological mm. parents I don't yeah, know exactly. the answer and you could even say that it's maybe no different than a, a cousin from abroad knocking on your door and saying hello you know in, in some way we are <laughs> distantly really related or something <laughs> like that you know you yeah. don't I think it's, it's a, very a connection but it's, it's not it's a personal issue isn't it it's yeah. how you feel how you feel about it and I think that just the the information needs to be out there so that people can make an informed choice and maybe you know encourage people to help you know those that people that have got children know what a fantastic gift it is and especially yeah. working in this field the um and, and seeing how many patients come through that are really trying that can give a child a wonderful home um you know it's just it's the best gift that you could give i think mm, i don't know if it's worth touching on the fact that now the um improvements in technique embryo culture it's freezing potentially there's a lot of frozen embryos in this country at the moment like more so than ever because we've always not we've never we didn't used to freeze anywhere near as many embryos because the culture techniques weren't as good mm -hmm. now we freeze a lot probably more than one family will ever need and i think that's going to be a question for the future of the embryology field in in as a whole really is there's an awful lot of embryos out there how do we use these without just discarding them is there a potential route there to encourage people to donate embryos to yeah. other couples yeah it's going to be tied up in a legal battle yeah. as much as anything else. As well, it's, that, it's, it? yeah. they are. I mean, they are such a precious resource. Having yeah. their, um, donor embryos, and you're right. There's there's so many there in storage that may never be used, and that couples that have had fertility treatment to to help them consider their options and potentially about donating donating those. They might have already had two or three kids and still have seven embryos in frozen. Of course, you of know. Course, so course, the yeah. the options there are to remove them from storage donate them to research or then donate them to another couple and at the moment it's not that common is it to donate them to another couple but maybe somebody who's had a family and like Becky mentioned like realizes realizing how precious that is and they were in that position they might be a little bit more sensitive mm -hmm. towards the people who unfortunately haven't had any success and may need donation mm. okay um so moving on um what do you see happening? We we spoke about the you know the technological advances and how IVF and ICSI and other embryological treatments have come forward in the past thirty years. Looking forward thirty years, what do you think could happen? Not just scientifically, but you know, speaking about the um, hoard, you know, having so many eggs in storage. What are the things that could feasibly happen legally, technologically, you know, medically in the future? I think um, the potential for fertility preservation for for females who aren't wanting to start their, their family yeah. yet 
Um, although egg storage is an option, um, it's not as successful as it could be. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to we need to spend more time, research efforts into improving our techniques for egg freezing. I think that will um, get bigger, and especially as I said, with the, the the trans population, with more females wanting to transition, we may have more eggs being stored um, for those for those individuals. Um, I think, as I said earlier, I do think our, our our population of patients is changing. I think we will see a lot more couples uh, for treatment with potentially the female having sperm in storage the male having eggs in storage and having and and it's very much this Mm. isn't this isn't a a male and female treatment this is very much a you know it's a couple yeah Um, Yeah. gender will be removed in society as a whole that's becoming we're becoming more aware as a society aren't we about the sort of fluidness of gender and that will affect us quite a lot I think technology wise you could argue sorry so no yeah I was gonna say about technology but it's more about sort of standardization of of what we do in the lab so you know you've got embryologists there that you know we're humans um, and although we're all trained to the same standard um, which is a high standard and we have SOPs to follow uh, there will be slight variability between individuals so you know somebody might be slightly better ICSI than somebody else's um, although we do audit those things to make sure that everybody is is, is within um, range um, but things like um, the embroscopes have been brought out that standardize the incubation of them and um, freezing this I know this emerging technologies about automated procedures so mm-hmm. you put your embryos in one end and they come out frozen at the other end so there's no exposure to different temperatures mm-hmm. so and that could be said for anything you know it would Reducing be it would be variability. nice to have a machine you could put the sperm in and it came out prepped at the other end <laughs> yeah. um but you know well, it's the injection of an egg with yeah. a sperm you know you've no idea if this isn't is yeah. be automated at some time yeah because you're talking about tiny distances like micrometers aren't you and mm-hmm. you know you, you you put it into the mid sperm into the middle of the egg but if you highly highly um looked into that in such a high mag- magnification you might be doing a slightly different that yeah. could it's variability mm. is the it's main thing and i think automation you're right is it's availability be of techniques that are, uh, as rachel and hannah there's two points here one where rachel said about one clinic or a research lab might come up with a technology that costs an absolute fortune that the nhs can't and we, i mean we're really lucky here in liverpool that we have embryoscopes as standard uh but um things like higher magnifications um when you do an ICSI looking at the um the where, where the polar body is and where the chromosomes are lying so you know that they have those techniques in labs abroad but we don't have them here so not necessarily that there'll be an advance that isn't here already it would just be more widely available and that also touches on when you were saying about people that have leftover surplus. Mm-hmm. i don't like using the word surplus because <laughs> yeah, they're all bit, as, they're yeah. all as precious as the next one but um, embryos that, that a family don't need anymore and, mm-hmm. and research is a bit is a, a difficult one as well on what your personal views are on that but the only way that we can improve technologies in the lab is by research with embryos so the more available they are and the more research projects that we can get and get funded we can just make the whole process more the aim is to make it more successful hmm. for all patients across the country not just specific labs it's also it, it's it's tricky um, because it's also about evidence-based medicine as well, and this is where it's very difficult for every clinic, um, not just us, because um, there is huge pressure, rightly so, from from the couples who want us to have offer the best treatments. There are new technologies because it's such an emotive subject. There are new technologies coming out all the time that there's no not necessarily any evidence for. 
mm-hmm. but they um, sound good the internet yeah it sounds good they make sense the internet is so you know it's all all that information is so accessible couples mm. scientists you know anyone can get access to it and think well why don't you offer that and there's the pressure to offer it and also the excitement that this could really help yeah that sometimes we introduce it and we might not have all of the evidence to support whether it works yeah. or not i think there's some technologies out there that actually well we know it can't do any harm therefore there is no harm to introduce it and if it helps some patients then that's a good thing but then you have the other you know the other side of that is is some how do we know they're not necessarily causing harm and it's very difficult. A, a, a really good one is pre-implantation genetic screening, for example, which we offer, and we think it's it's a valid um, a valid valid treatment for some patients. But it has been overused in mm. the past, and our you know to actually what the research then showed that it was actually to, to potentially to detriment to some to some couples mm. because the techniques weren't quite ready. I mean that was many years ago. We've now moved on um, with. That when we biopsy the embryo, so when we take the cells away from the embryo to be tested, that's changed. The way we look at the DNA has changed. All those things have got better. So the techniques are there and available, but we need to be careful about who we offer these treatments to and explain to anybody that wants these treatments whether what the value is, because yeah. they're expensive and, as and well. The last thing that we want is for patients to feel or anyone else to feel that there's been any exploitation you know we're doing in this field we're very passionate about what we do and the end point and you know we're trying to do what is best for the patient but they need to be fully informed of of what's make the right decision and make Mm -hmm. the right decision for them because the decisions that they make won't be won't necessarily be the right decisions for somebody else i think that's difficult as well with um always available to answer questions and things but you have patient groups um, and obviously there's so many people going through infertility that um, they talk to one another and it's like, well, they had that and I didn't have that. So why did mm-hmm. they get a day five transfer and I only had a day three transfer? And it's, it's that individualized care that we have to offer um, so that each couple is getting their best chance for them. Um, for them yeah. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, just to sorry, touch back on screening, so genetic screening, like it would seem certainly i think from a layperson that genetic screening of all embryos surely would help and then you put a genetic normal embryo back like i think as a patient i would think surely that's like the gold standard and i know um rachel's just explained that but i was just wanted to kind of explore do you think that it will come in more routinely rachel i i think yes and i think i think the argument could be the argument could be that um you're going to potentially get pregnant quicker. Yeah. Because if you screen the embryos before you transfer, you know which embryos are genetically normal. It's another and, discounting And a high method. number of them, although they look normal. Potentially not, normal. Potentially, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it's still that, there is still this you know, room for error, these false positive embryos mm-hmm. or false negative. And although they may come back as positives, and they come back that they're genetically abnormal, Yeah they still potentially have a chance of achieving a pregnancy because they can, some cells in, within an embryo can be different to others. So we may just be have tested some, some abnormal cells, but the rest may be normal, enough normal cells in there to make a normal pregnancy. Do you think that some of these pressures are coming from the financial weight of yes, um, treatments? No, that I think they I want th- to make sure they've got 110% because this is their only shot, maybe I, with some people? I think possibly yes, but I think it's also that realization that you may look and see 
that the success rates if I have PGS are way better than if I don't. So if I have the screening, it's way better. If you get a transfer. If, but that's if you get an embryo transfer. Right, so yeah. If you have embryos that come back classed as normal. So you've got to be careful. And again, it's about statistics. It's, it's a minefield looking it's at success rates and how successful some treatments are for some patients because you can manipulate statistics. You can look yeah. at them and... And again, there's so many variables it, for so an individual. It, it, it's really difficult for And anything really that's, that in, that's that invasive needs to be, well, in in my opinion right now, which would, would potentially change in the next five, ten years on how proceed, procedures develop and how good we get at everything, though. But um, for somebody who doesn't necessarily need it, it's quite an invasive procedure mm-hmm. that might fast-forward you six months by choosing an, an embryo that's definitely better than the other two embryo transfers but um, it, it's a lot for an embryo to go through to get to get to that point. It's a huge ethical debate really. You, but yeah, it's funny isn't right. it about because um, I agree but it's like you could rewind 25 years and people saying that about, about it. Like, they could yeah, be sitting yeah. in a room like yeah. this having yeah. the same yeah, conversation yeah, 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 which absolutely. is why I sort of wanted to bring it up because I think there is as PGS has developed certainly over the last few years and it's becoming more of a viable technique I kind of I don't know I've just got this little feeling that we're going to be doing it for everybody and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out really and if it's for the best and it gets more patients pregnant that's great but I certainly agree with what you two are saying that it's really invasive it, it, yeah. taking away a portion of something that might it might be able to repair itself and create a baby because it has and does but what effect that is having on the embryo we don't know this is all new. It's all new science. <laughs> well, that's what we were after. Right. Thank you very much. That was very, very interesting. Oh, thank you. Welcome.